Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This 126th episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, Yet Again. Donations to keep the CS host site up are welcome and needed. You can do so at sanctorum.us. Just look for the donate link. In the last episode, we considered the Second Great Awakening, and we ended with this. By the 1850s, the United States was thriving, largely because of the benefits that had been brought by the Awakening. The Midwest was being developed, the economy was booming, people made 18% interest on their investments. But as is so often the case, economic prosperity turned into a neglect of the spirit. The pursuit of pleasure trumped the pursuit of God. The nation was politically divided over the issue of slavery, and it wasn't just the states that were divided, churches and denominations split over it. Into this national argument that ended up tearing the country in two was added a dose of religious turmoil. A veteran and farmer named William Miller rediscovered the doctrine of the Second Coming. For generations, most of the church had considered Bible prophecy a closed book. Miller began teaching on the return of Christ. But he made the mistake that many have and said that Christ would return in 1844. About a million people followed Miller's views, and when it didn't happen, they were bitterly disillusioned because they had sold their farms, their homes, their businesses. Skeptics piled on the fanaticism of the Millerites and fired up a new round of mocking faith. But then, in 1857, things began to change. Another revival began as a movement of prayer. It was leaderless, though it did produce several notable leaders. In September of 1857, a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear printed up a leaflet on the importance of prayer. It announced that there would be a weekly prayer meeting at noon in the upper room of the North Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan. When time for the first meeting came, only Lanfear was there. He prayed anyway, and at 12.35, six more businessmen on their lunch break came up the stairs. They prayed until 1 p.m., As they broke up to return to work, they agreed that they'd been so moved that they would meet the following week as well, same time, same place. The next week, their number had doubled to 14. They sensed that something special was about to happen and agreed to meet every day, Monday through Saturday, in that room at noon. A few weeks later, the room overflowed, and they filled the basement, then the main sanctuary. A nearby Methodist church opened its doors for noontime prayer. When it filled... Trinity Episcopal Church opened. Then, church after church filled with people praying at noon, Monday through Saturday, mostly businessmen on their lunch breaks. Throughout the remainder of 1857, prayer meetings spread throughout the United States. In February of 1858, New York newspaper editor Horace Greeley sent a reporter out to cover the story of the growing movement. The reporter went by horse and buggy, was able to make about a dozen stops on his noontime hour. He estimated that there were 6,000 businessmen praying at the stops that he attended. Greeley was so surprised, he made the story the next day's headline, and other papers, not wanting to be outdone, also began to report on the revival. The publicity further fanned the flames and more began showing up, and soon every auditorium and hall in downtown New York was filled, then the theaters filled. Now we might wonder, what were these prayer meetings like? Well, they were run by laymen, not professional clergy. Pastors were often present but did not conduct the meetings. They might be asked to open prayer 
read a scripture, but then the meeting was turned over to 50 minutes of, or more of just prayer that was led by no one in particular. There was a remarkable sense of unity that marked the meetings. Those who attended came from different churches, but were cautious about debating doctrines. There was more a concern to focus on the things they agreed on. They were there to pray, so that's what they did. At one prayer meeting in Michigan led by a layman, he said, I see that my pastor and the Methodist minister are here. Well, one of you read a scripture and the other pray, and then we'll get started. They did. And then the layman said, I'm not used to this kind of public and impromptu prayer, so we'll follow the example that we've read about in the New York papers. We have so many here today. Please write your request down and then pass it to those in front. We'll read them one at a time and pray over each one. The first request said, A praying wife asks the prayers of this company for the conversion of her husband who is far from God. Now that's certainly a common request. But immediately a blacksmith stood up and said, My wife prays for me. I must be that man. I need to be converted. Would someone please pray for me? But then a lawyer said, Well, I think my wife wrote that note because I know I'm far from God. Five men all claimed that request was surely for them, and all were converted in a matter of just a few minutes. This was common at the beginning of the revival. People were converted during prayer meetings. They'd simply express their need for salvation and then would be prayed for by the rest. One minister stood up and said that he had stayed till 3 p.m. the day before answering the questions of those that wanted to come to faith in Christ. He announced that his church would be open each evening from then on for the preaching of the gospel. Soon every church was holding similar meetings. As the revival spread across the states, 10,000 were converted every week. In New York, New Jersey, of a population of 70,000, nearly 3,000 were brought to faith in two months. At Princeton University, almost half the students came to Christ, half of those entering full-time ministry. The revival swept the colleges of the nation. On February 3, 1858, in Philadelphia, a dozen men moved their daily prayer meeting from the outskirts of the city to downtown. They met at the James Theater, the largest in the city. A couple of weeks later, 60 were attending. By the end of March, 6,000 were literally crammed in. That summer, churches united to hold mass services. They erected big top tents and conducted evangelistic meetings that thousands flocked to. In Ohio, 200 towns reported 12,000 converts in just two months. In Indiana, 150 small towns saw 4,500 come to Christ. In two years, of a national population of 30 million, 2 million made a profession of faith. J. Edwin Orr remarks that this points up the difference between evangelism and revival. In evangelism, the evangelist seeks the sinner. But in times of revival, sinners come running to God. It was during this revival that a young shoe salesman went to the Sunday school director of the Congregational Church in Chicago and said that he wanted to teach a class. He was turned down because there were 16 ahead of him wanting to teach. They put him on a wait list. But he told the director, I, I want to do something now. The director said, well, okay, start a class. When the shoe salesman asked how, he was told, well, go get some boys off the street, take them to the country, and teach them how to behave, and then bring them in. So he went to the alleys, gathered up a dozen street urchins, took them to the beach on Lake Michigan. He taught them Bible games and scripture, and then brought them to the church where he was given a janitor's closet to hold his class. That was the beginning of the ministry of Dwight Lyman Moody, who went on to preach all over the United States and England 
and ended up leading tens of thousands to faith in Christ. You know, today we're accustomed to the secular press giving a cold shoulder to the things of God. That's not new. It's usually the way. Even during times of revival, the world tends to stand back and wait for it to pass. You know, they may give grudging acknowledgement of the good fruit that revival brings, but they always dig up some critic who dismisses it as just religious fanaticism, emotionalism. So the revival of 1857 and 8 stands out because the secular press received it with enthusiasm. Maybe because it was a movement that began in the sophisticated urban centers of the nation and spread there first. It was called the Businessmen's Revival. These weren't backwood country hicks that were getting religion. They were educated, literate, successful people being profoundly changed for the better. In a day when nearly everyone read the newspaper, they were familiar with the revival because it consistently made headlines. There was near universal approval of it. Yet it had a few critics, but their objections were dismissed as the grousing of unreasonable skeptics and the envious. The Anglicans were at first against it until their churches began filling with seekers, and then they approved of it as they saw its glorious effect. The same happened among the Lutherans. The prayer meetings were marked by order, and the conversions were as frequent among the older and mature members of the community as any younger. It quickly spread up into Canada, then across the Atlantic to Ireland, Scotland, and England, where conservative estimates say that 10% of the population was brought to faith in Christ. In London, every theater and auditorium was filled for prayer. It was during this time that Charles Spurgeon built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and Hudson Taylor started the China Inland Mission. Just a mile from where Taylor started, William Booth formed the Salvation Army. All of these came out of the revival of 1857-59. to The revival spilled over into Europe and reached India. The Dutch Reformed Church of South Africa still celebrates the revival for the huge impact that it had on them. Jamaica was covered, as were numerous other cities and nations. What I'd like to note as we end this episode is the date of this revival. Its peak was from 1857 to 60. A few years later, the U.S. was torn in two by civil war, a bloody chapter in my nation's history. Many of those who died in the war were saved in the revival. This seems to be a consistent pattern of revival, that it takes place just prior to a major war. Dr. Orr says that this has been a consistent pattern throughout our nation's history. The First Great Awakening occurred shortly before the Revolutionary War, the Second before the War of 1812, the Revival of 1857-60 to 60 before the Civil War. The Welsh Revival that so affected Great Britain, Europe, and the United States came right before World War I. It's as though God pours out His Spirit to reap a harvest before evil falls, and there's a great loss of life. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.